Challenge Editorial Spain. Fight the bosses, rising fascism. Sunday, July twenty third, twenty twenty three. If the far right Vox Party joins Spain's ruling coalition after the July twenty third general election, it will be the first Spanish government to include open fascists since the death of mass murderer Francisco Franco in nineteen seventy five. It would also mark the latest failure of liberal democracy to manage the growing global crisis of capitalism, as the U.S. bosses keep weakening in the face of an aggressive challenge by the Chinese imperialists, their junior NATO partners, the centrist parties that have ruled Western Europe since World War II, are losing their grip as well. Instability is everywhere. Everything seems up for grabs. With the war in Ukraine escalating and World War III looming, the old liberal democratic world order is in shambles. Confronted with runaway inflation, a wave of climate catastrophes, and mass unemployment, close to 13% in Spain alone, both the open fascist insurgents and the old guard liberals are scapegoating migrating workers, a hallmark of rising fascism. As millions of workers' lives are upended in the general turmoil, a segment of the working class has been infected by the disease of anti-immigrant racism. In this dark night of weak class consciousness, the capitalist rulers are pulling out all of the stops to mislead, deceive, and divide us, regardless of which of the bosses' factions wins the next round of elections. The rulers will ultimately need full both the open fascist insurgents and the old guard liberals are scapegoating migrating workers. Only an international mass workers movement led by communists can beat back the rising tide of fascism. Only communist revolution, spearheaded by the fighting Progressive Labour Party. Can end imperialist war and create a society run by and for the working class. The profit system cannot reform its way out of this crisis. History shows us that it can never serve workers' needs. Capitalism must be destroyed, root and branch. Join us. We have a world to win. As liberal democracy weakens, open fascism rises. Six years ago in Spain, nostalgic for the Franco years, a splinter group denounced the right-wing popular party as too soft and set off on its own. Widely dismissed and underestimated, the Vox Party exploited workers' anxiety over the Catalan separatist movement, which was pushing to break away from the richest region of Spain, centered in Barcelona, and form its own country. Using the classic fascist tools of gutter racism and sexism, and taking a nationalist page from the U.S. small fascist forces fronted by Donald Trump, Vox opposes abortion rights, denies climate change, and rejects the need for the government to combat gender violence. Now backed by 15% of voters nationwide. Vox is being courted to form a new parliamentary majority by the Popular Party. 
which is favored to win the upcoming election after shifting to a more openly racist, anti-immigrant platform. If that alliance comes to pass, Spain would join a growing list of European countries, including the old World War II fascist axis of Germany, Italy, and Vichy France, with openly fascist parties, either within the government or as a leading opposition to the government. And with Spain next in line to hold the presidency of the European Union, Spanish fascists could influence the EU's agenda. When liberal democracy fails the capitalist class, fascism gives the bosses more direct control over all aspects of society, from the media and universities to industrial policy and war preparations. It's no accident that fascism is the fastest growing political movement in Europe today. This reality would have been unthinkable in the decades following World War II, when fascist parties were outlawed in Germany and marginalized in France and Italy. But times are changing and fast. Millions of workers have lost confidence in the ability of the traditional post-war European parties to solve the glaring problems of capitalism. Europe's capitalist rulers, the dominant banks and industrialists, are terrified of losing the white working class, a fear compounded by Britain's departure from the EU and recent mass protests against French bosses' pension reform. At present, these rulers aren't moving to Smashbox or the likes of open fascist leaders like Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney. If anything, they appear to be hedging their bets, just as they did in Germany in 1933 when they sanctioned Adolf Hitler's appointment as chancellor by the liberal-backed president. In the most recent elections in Germany, the most committed fascist nation during World War II, the alternative for Germany expanded its base even after the AFD members were arrested for helping to plan a fascist coup last December. The party is polling up to 20%, neck and neck with Chancellor Olaf Scholz's Social Democrats and behind only the conservative CDU-CSU bloc. In France, the national rally headed by Marine Le Pen is now the highest polling party in the country. Amid the ongoing rebellion over the French cop's cold-blooded killing of a 17-year-old son of North African immigrants, it's calling for harsher treatment of migrating workers, wholesale evictions of public housing residents for minor offenses, and the building of more prisons, the boss's modern concentration camps. In their desperate attempt to hold on to power, the ruler's mainstream liberal agents, from Joe Biden to Emmanuel Macron, are quickly adopting their own more virulent racist and anti-immigrant policies. From the Texas border to the segregated suburbs of Paris, they're enabling mad dog police terror. In France, the KKK cops have even prohibited protests against their own racist violence. The result is a political spiral towards fascism. As the big capitalists move to the right, they're legitimizing and energizing far-right parties that have little or no stake in liberal democracy. Vox, for example, is banning unfriendly news outlets from its events and calling for them to be shut down. As the bosses' contradictions continue to sharpen, we can expect the liberals to follow suit in ditching the phony freedoms of capitalist democracy. Only communists can defeat fascism. 
The working class cannot afford to sit around and wait for the capitalists to try to fix their unfixable contradictions. Economic and inter-imperialist crises inevitably lead to rising fascism and wider war. In World War II, the force that stopped full-blown fascism in its tracks was a communist-led working class. Although communists and other anti-fascists were defeated in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, they inspired workers throughout the world in the global conflict that followed, culminating in the Soviet Union's destruction of Nazi Germany. The revolutionary Chinese Communist Party played an important role in beating back fascist Japan. The Communist Party of Italy led the resistance that smashed the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini. Today, there are but two paths before us, fascism or communist revolution. There is no middle ground, no third way. As communist theorist R. Palm Dutt observed in Fascism and Social Revolution in 1934, capitalism in its decay breeds fascism. Capitalist democracy in decay breeds fascism. The only final guarantee against fascism, the only final wiping out of the causes of fascism is the victory of the proletariat dictatorship. And so our choice is clear. We must build progressive labor party. Soy comunista toda la vida y comunista he de morir. Una mañana de sol radiante, bella chao, bella chao, bella chao, chao, chao. Una mañana de sol radiante sale a buscar. Welcome back to Challenge Radio. So today we'll be talking about the recent editorial on the rise of fascism in Spain. And tonight we're truly international. We're joined by a comrade who's been living in Italy off and on for the past 15 years who can provide a little bit more local perspective on the shift that's happening in Europe. Um, so I was hoping you could just take a couple of minutes to zoom us out a little bit and talk about this trend that's happening. I know that there's been a rise of fascist parties in many countries in Europe. Hey, everybody, how you doing? These are dire times, and where I am sitting right now, it's also really, really hot. I'm in Italy, and it was almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit today, so bear that in mind. Um, yeah, there's definitely been a, a rise of a fascist movement in Italy, though it calls itself post-fascist. The Challenge editorial uh, about the, the rise of the Vox Party and its potential uh, alliance with another right-wing party slightly less reactionary, but only slightly, uh, has put on the map for, for us just what's a, a really widespread trend. So let me just take take a minute. I was sort of thinking today about, well, what, what other countries we have here? So let me just go through it. Okay, uh, Hungary, with Viktor Orban in charge of things, actually has been a right-wing country for a couple of decades now. And people may be aware of these huge demonstrations of women in favor of abortion rights because, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church in, in league with the government there has been trying to deprive that, you know, women of that right. Greece, a movement called New Democracy, has 
recently defeated Syriza, which is this sort of social democratic movement that came out 10, 15 years ago to deal with the, the Greek financial crisis. New Democracy is a coalition of three far-right parties. Poland, we have the Law and Justice Party, which has been, again, in power for a long time. This is not a recent development. They've been a, a right-wing force for a long time. Italy, where I am now, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, that means the Brothers of Italy, uh, headed up by a woman named Georgia Maloney, who, who talks about God, country, and all kinds of good stuff. Um, she, as she calls herself post-fascist, but she's the head of a regime that is, you know, viciously anti-working class, viciously anti-immigrant, and despite her claims to be a feminist, viciously anti-female and anti-gay. Then we have Germany with the Alternative for Germany, which is coming in with a major kind of uh, bid for power. They even had a kind of unsuccessful push for power, but it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, there, this is in a country where, where, you know, the Nazis came to power back in the 1930s, when you have this neo-Nazi organization making itself felt in political life, that's a pretty scary stop. Let me move along here. France, you have the movement headed up by Marine Le Pen. Her group is now called National Rallies. They've changed the name of the, of the group over and over and over again. She's the daughter of Jean Le Pen, who came at, into visibility you know, two or three decades ago on an openly anti-immigrant and racist platform. She has tried to sanitize things, but not very much. And now, of course, she is a main uh, opposition to the, the main government uh, that's edited up by a guy named Emmanuel Macron. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Okay, just a few more now. Portugal, okay? There's a growth of a party called Chega, which means enough, all right? Which is neo-Salazarist, which means it's basically hearkening back to the days of the fascist dictatorship that everyone thought had been uh, gotten rid of in the 1970s in the so-called Carnation Revolution. And then a lot of people think that the Scandinavian countries are some kind of haven for the oppressed of the world, that they are open to refugees and all of that. Well, in Sweden, Sweden, the party calling itself the Sweden Democrats, is, has a, is a right-wing bloc that's the largest group in government. Uh, in Finland, the most recent entry into NATO, you have something called the National Coalition Party, which again is viciously anti-immigrant. And then finally, in the Netherlands, you had the recent, just I think in a week or so ago, resignation of the prime minister, a guy named Mark Rutte, over his embrace of an anti-immigration policy that the rest of the government didn't want to stand by. So you can see what's going on here. And um, this is a continent-wide movement. We need to be talking about what some of the implications of that are, because it's not just a few neo-Nazi right-winger types who have just sort of risen up out of the woodwork or something and, and manifested themselves. These groups have been in existence in a covert way in all of these countries for a long period of time. And now they're coming out. And you know what else? Now they're talking to each other. So why now? I think that's the question. Like you said, these groups have been around for a long time. They've been organizing for a long time. I think a lot of liberals who would like to pretend that they're a bulwark against fascism or I'd like to say that it's some ideological sort of disease that's working its way through the white working class, but it doesn't really explain the timing. So why is this happening now? It's a classic instance of the complete betrayal of the working class. And I use that term advisedly because I think it's a pretty conscious betrayal on the part of the social Democrats, which you know is a term generally applicable to like liberals, 
uh, some of whom, you know, have their roots in the old communist movement. And for several decades now, and this isn't all that different from what's happened in the United States, what's happened is that they have imposed austerity. That word is really important for understanding what the hell is going on. Austerity regimes on the working class populations in every single one of the countries that I've mentioned. What that has meant a number of things. Okay, number one, absolute support for the, the NATO war and the hiking of the military budgets. And by the way, a year ago, when all of this stuff was really heating up, I was in a march in Rome. Interesting. And there must have been, what, 50,000 people there? It was huge. And it was an anti-war march. And there wasn't a single Ukrainian flag. It was all about Italy get out of NATO. Hmm? So a lot of people don't like this stuff, okay? But nonetheless, Italy is part of NATO. It has been ramping up its military budget. So there we go. That's one thing. Slashing, absolute slashing of pensions and wages. Uh, people in Italy, and here I'm talking not about the extremely poor and super exploited, generally the groups of dark-skinned immigrants who are seeking any kind of employment here, but these so-called native-born Italians. People are poor. Lots of people here are poor. And young adults who might otherwise be getting married, whatever, having children, building families, they can't do it, right? People in their 40s are living with their parents because the wages have been slashed, the pensions have been slashed. There's, it's the gig economy on steroids, universally experienced, okay? At the same time, shades of the United States, bailouts for big banks and corporations, 140 billion euros, the Sanchez government, sent over to the banks in the last year or so. Uh, in the Sanchez government, because these are the liberals in power in Spain, you know, attacks on striking metal workers, which in called bringing in the anti-riot police. And now we have to think of the way that railway workers have been really screwed by the Biden administration in the US. But here they brought in the anti-riot police. In terms of what's going on with refugees, I suppose the, the hugest crime here can be laid at the door of, of Italy. Not that Italy is any worse than any of the others, but um, migrants are dying at sea all the time. And very recently, there was a group of migrants who died off the coast of the Canary Islands, and the, uh, the Coast Guard just sort of sat around and watched it happen. So, you know, the, this kind of, you know, racist neglect of, of the dire human needs of these refugees is just, is just egregious. Um, in terms of, uh, this is the Sanchez government in Spain, uh, COVID. 160,000 Spaniards died of COVID. That's a lot of people. A million died in the United States, but I suppose if you look proportionally in the size of the populations, pretty damn bad. So what's happening in all of these countries, and I can certainly see it in Italy, people are waiting 48 hours in, in the emergency room, okay, if they're if they dire problems is that you know the healthcare the so-called so public healthcare has been drastically cut back and then sanchez this is the last point i'd make about the spanish situation is at the same time as all of these dire cutbacks in the standard of living of the average working class population have been taking place the uh, the government made a recent commitment to the eu that's the european union that for now is the umbrella umbrella group that's aspiring to be the boss of them all you know, promised them that they would cut back 24 billion euros from the budget of the country in terms of 
social expenditures. So you can sort of see what the program is here. And given that absolute abandonment, you know, of the working class populations, this is, you know, ground for all kinds of, of xenophobia and other kinds of scapegoating ideological mechanisms to be taking place. I think that that situation is very familiar to a lot of Americans with the, you know, unable to get married, unable to buy a home, major cuts that they're facing, workers just not able to survive as they used to. I think your, your mentioning of the gig economy is really uh, on point. I think the 2008 financial crisis was a, a moment that revealed that the crisis of capitalism had developed to a pretty extreme extent. Their uh, ability to generate profits off the working class has diminished greatly, largely due to uh, the development of technology uh, that replaces workers. They don't have a consumer base like they used to. The world's been divided. There's no places to go. Just steal a bunch of resources easily without building conflict with another imperialist power, for instance, Russia and China, and the case of the EU and the United States. And so that regardless of what their promises are, they've had to make all of these vicious cuts and attacks on the working class to shore up their profits. And um, what that I think has meant is, you know, they're not going to tell you that capitalism is the problem. So they're going to tell you that uh, foreign workers are the problem or black workers are the problem or women are the problem. I mean, if we could just go back to the way things used to be with this extreme right wing reaction. And this is where our party comes in to really explain to people that this is a capitalist problem, that capitalism breeds fascism and that there is an answer here that isn't fascism, it's communist revolution. Yeah, and let me let me just say something about the editorial there. Um, I thought it was an excellent editorial. Of course, one always wants it to be able to say three times as much, <laughs> but there are restrictions of length. But the, the way the editorial ends, and this might be, uh, Comrade, what you're referring to, there's a reference to uh, a book by a guy named Dutt, D-U-T-T-R, Palma Dutt. And he was actually an, an Indian-born member of the uh, Communist Party leadership of the United Kingdom, of the, of the UK. And he wrote this really, really important book in 1934 called Fascism and Social Revolution. That's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's, it's important for, for people in and around PLP uh, to understand that because I think it's kind of a baseline for some of our understanding of how you deal with fascism. It basically says that fascism is the form of class rule that is resorted to by the bourgeoisie, by the capitalist class when they are in a desperate state, when they don't feel that they can rule in the old way, when they don't feel that they can use the, pardon the cliche, fig leaf of, of democracy, the electoral democracy, and that they just have to sort of bring out the, the iron fist and the reason that the Dutt book is important is not only that it poses that communist revolution is the only solution, the only antidote to these fascist movements, but also that the Dutt position at the Seventh World Congress in 1935 ended up not being endorsed by the Comintern. That was the Communist International. And all of this is our history. This is what we come out of. So it's important to know this stuff, right? Right. And instead, a position of a, a guy named Georgi Dimitrov, a Bulgarian, who was certainly a heroic anti-fascist fighter, but it basically proposed the so-called United Front, or that became the Popular Front against fascism, which basically proposed that a, a United Front with the progressive wing of the bourgeoisie was needed as a temporary expedient to deal with fascism. And in a way, 
we've been paying the price for that ever since. And these European communist parties after World War II, they sort of go into electoral politics. They give up on the notion of social revolution. They give up on the notion that capitalism leads to fascism and that fascism requires being overthrown by communist revolution. You know, it's, it's really important. The, the Dutt book is available on the internet, Fascism and Social Revolution. And I really, really encourage people to read it. It's quite an eye-opener. Yeah, I agree. And the point is well taken about there's this instinct that safety against fascism could be secured by alliances with progressive or liberal bourgeoisie, but those are the same people that created the problems that led to fascism in the first place. And a lot of communist spiders died making that mistake. A lot of uh, communist movements were sold out in the hopes that concessions to liberal capitalists would allow us to fight fascism. And really, it came down to communist spiders the last time this happened in World War II. Um, yeah. A lot of sacrifices to make those alliances and very little help. Right. Now, I've been reading a, a memoir called La Resistenza Tradita, which means the resistance betrayed. Uh, and it deals with the experiences of a guy from a peasant kind of background. His name was Aladino Sabatini. I won't give you the details. He ended up joining the resistance. At the same time as he became a communist, he said, you can't be resisting these Nazi fascisti and you can't be resisting the people in Italy who are supporting them unless you're going to be a communist too. And he said, if I die, let me die as a communist, which just sounds like a line from some of our favorite songs, Bella Ciao. E si giomero en el combate, tormentos manos fitmis fusil. Soy comunista toda la vida, e comunista de morir. This is my terrible Spanish, okay? <laughs> but that was... <laughs> But anyhow, he says towards the end of it, after giving an incredible account of what his life was like and with tremendous self, non-self-aggrandizing and great humility, and then he says toward the end, we should have killed them all. <laughs> we should have finished the job, and we didn't finish it. And now the people who have their hand on the nuclear button, this was, he's talking in 1981, are the same ones who ran the society back then. And he says... But if someone starts a revolution, and this is an old dude at this point, he says, I'll go up to the mountains again, all right? In other words, he was so disgusted by what Italian society had become by then, where, you know, the fascists were totally coming out of the woodwork, you know, blowing up the train station in Bologna, and the people who are running the government are sort of the predecessors of Silvio Berlusconi, who was the predecessor of Giorgia Meloni, and all of these disgusting, you know, reactionary people. It's a noble history that, you know, cannot be completely lost and hasn't been completely lost. Yeah. And we don't need to romanticize it, but it's it's there. It's our history. Yeah. It's very important that people understand this, that the fascism was not defeated. It was just delayed. As long as the capitalists are in power, there's going to be a trend towards fascism because they can't, there's nothing they can do to avoid the crisis of capitalism developing over time. So we're back to where we started. There was a, a little bit of a reset because of the destruction of World War II. But we haven't, yeah. until there's a communist world society, then this threat of fascism will always be present. Yeah, and that's a, that's a pretty sobering thought, that capitalism is intrinsically not democratic. It's intrinsically authoritarian and repressive. That's its nature. Though it can manifest itself in different ways at different times. That's the reason I went through this whole catalog of countries in Europe and, you know, 
needless to say, we're not talking about the rest of the world. Sure. And, and we see these kinds of trends. In challenge, we've been seeing these kinds of trends emerging in, in many places. So it's, a, it's definitely a worldwide problem once again. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, we've learned a lot from challenge about how racism, sexism, and nationalism have been used to against the working class and sort of liberal democracy times. Or how do those play into the boss's plans to enact fascism? Well, it's interesting. See, with the nationalism thing, you know, all of these parties and these groupings that I've talked about are very nation-based nationalist, okay? They talk about Swedish power, German power, Portuguese power, blah, 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 blah. They are, on the other hand, very much in touch with each other. And Georgia Maloney, who's the fascist, she calls herself post-fascist, but she's fascist, runs the government here in Italy. She was very disappointed that Vox, you know, the super right-wing group in, in Spain that didn't quite manage to make it over this time, though they may they may get over, you know, a few months from now when everything is, is redone in terms of elections. She was she said, well, I'm sorry, you know, our project has been disrupted. In other words, these, these people are in touch with one another. In fact, as soon as Maloney was elected, she, you know, courted a great big photo opportunity with Victor Ur Urban, okay, who was the fascist who was in charge of, of things in Hungary. And then she also called up Vox. She really likes these Vox people and congratulated Vox on the, the, its recent growth in the uh, in the regional elections in Spain. And um, she spoke at their rallies, okay? Maloney went to Spain and spoke at Vox rallies. So there's a kind of international group of nationally-based fascists who are totally in, con in connection with one another. And the day that she called up Vox and did all that kind of friendly stuff was the day after after a year ago, there was a fascist assault on CGLE, which is the main trade union in Italy. And it's nothing but a social democratic trade union, don't get me wrong here. But these fascists busted into the CGLE headquarters and, and wrecked it, okay? And she calls Vox the day after that. This is all part of what these people are celebrating. Okay, the, the European Union is the group that hooks all of them together now. And the European Union is completely tied up to the European Central Bank. And the European Central Bank has agreements with these different nations. On the one hand, they need to impose austerity on their populations, the great A for austerity. On the other hand, they get payments from the European Central Bank. So you see, it's a kind of, you slap my hand, I'll slap your kind of deal, all right? So that to this point, and here I'm afraid that my knowledge of exactly what's going on in all of these countries, you know, isn't complete. But I know, I know that in Italy, Giorgio Maloney ran for office as a so-called Eurosceptic, meaning, hmm, do we really want to belong to the European Union? I'm not sure. And she had pictures taken with her and Vladimir Putin. Then she gets elected, and there's a kind of switcheroo in that she now is all in favor of the European project, the European Union, you know, supporting Ukraine and all of that. But it's completely two-faced. And everybody who knows what she's about knows that. And what I'm wondering, you know, whether we can even speculate about is if all of these right-wing parties, which are basically Eurosceptical because they're against the kind of NATO based project that the United States, of course, has supported since World War II and that has been tremendously aggrandizing to the U.S. as an imperial power. These people, if they have enough 
connection among themselves, these different right-wingers and gaining power in these different nations, they may sink the European Union and they may sink NATO. Now, remember, the Great Britain, the UK, got out of the, its connection with the European Union. And um, if these countries form a sort of new fascist international, sort of like Steve Bannon, you remember him? You know, uh, Donald Trump's good buddy, you know. Yeah. I was, you know, calling for an inter- a fascist international. It could be an interesting combination of nation-based nationalism on the one hand, and yet a kind of alliance, as in fact a, a, any number of the fascist countries had during World War II, in which case there would be major opposition to U.S. imperialism. We, we don't know whether that might happen, but we cannot cross that off the list. And there, therefore, the way in which the Spanish election which may seem just sort of like a local phenomenon or mainly only relevant to Europe, might in fact have a major role to play in inter-imperialist politics on the largest scale between the United States on the one hand and China, China plus Russia on the other. Sure, yeah. You sort of suggest there'll be an effort to... uh have a, a Eurozone or, or an individual imperialist projects in these countries that for a long time have been on the coattails of the United States, uh, which is dangerous and really interesting. And, you know, we saw, like you said, we saw this last time with the rise of fascism. They ultimately can't be loyal to anyone but their, themselves, but they will make opportunistic relationships. Actually, on that note, I was looking into Vox in Spain. Um, they're virulent anti-Muslim um, as part of this history, they're sort of reclaiming this fake history of uh, the Spanish being the bulwark against um, the invasion of Muslim folks from Africa. But at the same time, they're taking enormous amounts of money from expatriate Iranian groups. They're pushing for a war with Iran to replace the government there, which is really interesting. So they're just very opportunistic in these relationships. I think um, on the point of racism and sexism, one of the things that Vox is famous for, and I think this is true also of the fascists in Italy, is extreme levels of sexism and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. You know, if you're telling people that they have to accept less and less and less to be part of a national project of, you know, rebirth of the I don't know, Spanish Empire or the Italian Empire or the French Empire, one of the ways you can get young men to buy into that is if you tell them that they you'll lose most of your rights in public but in the home you'll be the Fuhrer right so that if you can promise these these young men who are feeling beaten down by capitalism and being down by the liberal bosses that they can you know feel powerful by being uh, in charge at home so they're using sexism that way to divide the working class and I think it's similar like in a larger scale for racism if you you can scapegoat uh, you know, it's not capitalism's fault you're feeling this way. It's, you know, immigrants are taking your jobs. These extreme attacks on uh, racial minorities, they can take a bunch more money by exploiting those minorities and at the same time um, divide the working class, get, pit people against each other. Instead of the alternative would be to build a unified working class government for workers, but they don't want to do that, obviously. So, yeah. No, I, I think that, that those points are really well taken. And I mean, I, I would say that probably uh, anti-immigrant racism is the cutting edge of the growth of, of you know most of these movements. Certainly, the, the Scandinavian movements. It seems to be the case there. The uh, the, the challenge editorial, I think, does a, a really good job of, of stressing that. It, it mentions in passing, but not doesn't quite as fully focus upon what's going on with sexism. And I just wanted to 
make a point bolstering the way you just frame things, which is that, you know, plain old old fashioned patriarchal sexism generates the notion that man is boss in the family the way that the leader of the state is boss of the nation. In other words, there's supposed to be a real kind of analogy there. So that I think, you know, a Marxist analysis of how so-called patriarchy functions can really powerfully show how on the personal level, you know, the, the experiences of domination and suppression that people experience in the family are really, re, you know, reproduced on the, on the national and, and even international level. This is Georgia Meloni. Her favorite slogan is Dio, Patria, Familia, God, Country, Family, all right? And of course, we have God in heaven <laughs> who's up there presiding over the whole thing, right? The way that the patriarchal sexism is functioning here is, is really important. And of course, then there's this whole notion of what's a natural family, right? And people who adhere to, you know, untraditional gender mores, to put it delicately, right, are seen as banished from that sphere of the natural family, right? This whole sexism is really part of a really hegemonic uh, fascist discourse. And yet, here I am in Italy, right? Every month, scores of bodies are found in the Mediterranean. You hear of the huge things that, like what happened last month, I suppose, in, in Greece. But bodies are washing up on the shore all the time. And they're the bodies of black and brown-skinned people from, from Africa, from Yemen, Syria, from Bangladesh, <laughs> from a long far away, you know. And um, it's, it's a, a kind of racist massacre that's taking place on a weekly basis and the European Union is completely doing absolutely nothing about it, sort of saying, well, the different countries can call their own shots in the way that they want to. And, you know, uh, Coast Guards are sitting by, standing by and, and watching these boats go down and not saving the people. As a, as a matter of policy, sometimes the members of the Coast Guard, as with Greece, they wanted to go in and save those people, but they were told policy. So... You know, what's happening here is already very bloody and, and, and vicious. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that this is, these are liberals doing, doing these things. And, you know, I, the, the working class has been told to passively vote for or endorse social Democrats or liberals to protect them against fascism. Uh, but like you said, it takes a Marxist analysis to really understand these things. And that's the danger in allying with these people or relying on, passively relying on them as they... They don't have answers. They simply uh, will make things worse. And in fact, in, in Spain and a lot of other places, they've also been shifting towards extreme racist and sexist language, normalizing this kind of thing. Um, so the world that's really needs to take history into its own hands to be armed with a Marxist communist analysis of what's going on so they can answer why are things getting worse under the sort of so-called liberal capitalism and, and what's an actual solution to these problems. And along those lines, one thing about PLP that's really important is that not only is it sort of uncompromisingly communist and revolutionary and non-liberal and all of that, but also it proposes itself to be, it's still, I would say, in formation, one party for all the workers in all parts of the world, different countries, blocks of countries, regions, whatever, which doesn't mean that it has the identical analysis of what the contradictions are in any given part of the world, but 
it's 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 time to say you don't have socialism with special Czechoslovakian characteristics or communism with special Indian characteristics or anything like that. You can right. say it's not playing off of China there, which is certainly not socialism with Chinese characteristics, or it, it's not socialism, let alone communism. I, I think the idea that you know a, an international communist party is an international communist party with with one name, and that's what we aspire to be. Yeah. That makes everyone stronger when we fight together. All right. I want to thank you so much for joining me, braving the uh, big time zone difference to, to be here tonight. It was a very, uh, a very informative talk. And I think people will learn a lot from it. So I thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. Great. And what we, what we think and what we say and what we do matters. Yes, I agree. And to the uh, anti-fascists in Spain who are fighting back, we stand with you. Good luck. And, you know, we're fighting wherever we are to curb this rise of fashion. So thank you, too. That's, you got it. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> En el combate, tomen tus manos, tipos. Sí. Soy comunista, soy comunista, a la vida, a la vida, de la chave, la chave, la chave, la soy comunista, toda la vida, y comunista he de morir. Soy comunista, toda la vida, y comunista.